Listeners, glad to meet with you again. You are now listening to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. I hope all of our listeners lived as the salt of the world, fighting against the corruptness of this world. Do you all have faith? I'm pretty sure we all have faith. Faith to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, living our lives for Him. We often speak about how great or small one's faith is. Have you ever heard or spoke about how someone had such great faith they did this, or in contrast, had such little faith they did that? This is why we all want to have great faith. As someone with great faith, I hope to believe that we will do great things. In the book of Acts, the actions of the apostles after Jesus ascends into heaven are recorded. Through their faith, they healed, expelled evil spirits, and did numerous miracles and spread the gospel of Christ. When looking at the apostles, I'm guessing that at one point or another, we may all have hoped that we would have the faith to act out miracles. But in order to work in these ways, what kind of faith do we need? Perhaps at least the faith of the apostles Jesus sent. What is the great faith that Jesus speaks about? Jesus says in Luke seventeen, "If a brother sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times for repentance, to forgive him." In verse five, the apostles say to the Lord, "Increase our faith." They seek for greater faith and want the Lord to increase their faith. But Jesus replies in verse six, "If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, 'Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you.'" To me, this verse seemed to say, "If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could proclaim to the mulberry tree to be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would have done so. But it did not because of your little faith." It is as if Jesus is rebuking the apostles for their faith and saying that their faith was not even as big as a mustard seed. But Jesus continues on after verse six to say something even more surprising. What does he say? We'll come back to share more after our first song.
just what you say that you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside. I give you my life. Give me faith to trust what you. As the apostles seek greater faith, Jesus explains to them what a faith the size of a mustard seed can do. And he continues to speak of something that is irrelevant to greater faith. He says in Luke chapter 17, verse 7 through 9, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come out once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? To the apostles who asked Jesus to increase their faith, Jesus replies by speaking about a servant. What do you make of this? It's very true, isn't it? If we had a servant who worked hard outside all day, when they came into the house, we wouldn't tell them that they did not need to do their duties inside the house. This is because all the work, whether inside or outside, are the duties of the servant. The owner also has no reason to thank the servant for doing everything the owner asks of him, because this is what the servant is supposed to do. I am not speaking about human or civil rights. I am not putting any focus on the rights or status of a servant, but want to share about the relationship between a master and his servant. A master would have paid for the worth of their servant, so the master had ownership of his servant and had the right to give him duties to fulfill. The servant was expected to obey their requests and duties laid out by the master. This is a simple relationship between a master and a servant. As the apostles asked for their faith to be increased, Jesus speaks about the relationship between a master and his servant. But how is this relevant to having great faith?
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Judge is on Your Side, Part 1, based on 1 John chapter 2, verse 1-11. through 11. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Mark Martin. First John. Let's open our Bibles to First John. First John chapter two, verses one and two. And if you're not sure, this is the book, the little book of John toward the back of the Bible, not the Gospel of John, in case it's your first time. You're unfamiliar with the territory. First John chapter two, one and two. My little children. I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I love that passage. In fact, I love 1 John. But in this passage, you, you hear again John's father heart. You hear him ministering as such a good shepherd and pastor to uh, this huge flock all over the church that the Lord has given him. And he says, I'm writing to you, my little children. He doesn't call us saints this time. He doesn't call us brothers or sisters, he doesn't call us sinners, which he could, right? But he addresses us as little children. And I, you know, it just kind of disarms you right away and you don't feel scared. And uh, that's just grace coming through. And he gives, he goes on to give us another purpose of this book. I'm writing these things that you may not sin. The Apostle John intended for his letter to help us avoid sin and to guide us out of sin if we fall into it. But he knew that we would sin. And so he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An ancient Chinese story is told about a young boy and his mother who lived in abject poverty. And one day the boy found a purse at the marketplace and he hurried home with the purse and he emptied the contents out on the table in front of his mother and out fell 15 gold coins. When his mother saw this, she immediately said that he had to take it back to the marketplace and find the owner of the purse and give it back to them. So the little boy hurried back with the purse and the owner, seeing the little boy with the purse, saw it as an opportunity to make a little money. And so when the little boy returned it to him, the owner said, oh, no, when I had this purse, there were 30 gold coins in it, not 15. And so a judge ended up listening to the dispute and ruled that since the purse the man lost had contained 30 coins and this one only had 15, it could not be poss possibly be his. <laughs> Furthermore, he explained since no one had reported a lost purse with 15 coins in it, he gave the purse and its content tense to the little boy and his mother. <laughs> if you've ever stood face to face with an intimidating opponent, you know how frightening it can be. And you can also identify with the surprise and relief that this mother and this little boy must have felt to know that the judge was on their side. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The judge is on your side. That's what the scripture is saying. The word advocate used other places for the term the comforter. It's the word paraclete, parakletos, which in Greek means one called alongside. Speaks of Jesus being called alongside, but in this case and in this usage, there is a use 
of this word that means one called alongside to help in legal matters, one who offers legal help or intercedes on behalf of somebody. And he's saying, Jesus Christ, righteous Jesus, stands right next to you, and you don't have to fear. You don't even have to fear the judge or the judgment. The, the Greek actually says we have an advocate facing. The, the with means to face. Facing the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he, verse 2, he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, he, he died to placate the wrath of God. And in some circles nowadays, nobody wants to talk about the wrath of God, but there is the wrath of God against sin. God, in, if he's right and righteous, which we want God to be when it's our cause, right? We want God to be right when it's us that's been wronged. We want him to be righteous when we're the one that's suffering. Lord, make things right, right? Right? Well, what about when we do wrong? Well, Lord, don't make things right. <laughs> See, God is always righteous, but God is love. But because God's righteousness towards sin says sin must be punished, and there's wrath that comes against sin. And the wrath of God has been satisfied by Jesus Christ who came and he died on the cross for us because God's wrath said those sins that we've committed have to be punished. Those sins have to be paid for and made right. There is, there is a sentence to be paid. You couldn't, you couldn't stand before judges and, and the judge say, well, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. You're a really nice person. That's okay. I mean, come on. You would have no legal system if that happened. And so God, not wanting to have to pass sentence on us but not wanting to throw away righteousness has come up with the perfect plan. And he says, I will pass the sentence. <gasps> I thought you loved me, God. And then you see God move from behind the judge's bench. You see God taking off the black robe of his office. And you see him coming down and he stands in front of the bench and he receives the judgment that we deserve. And he takes the punishment that we deserve upon himself. That is what happened. Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one and the righteous judge, he came and he took our place, standing in our stead. The wrath of God was poured out upon him so that we don't have to receive the wrath of God ever. This is the awesome good news of the gospel. And now, the Lord did this for every person, but the benefits only can be applied to those who receive what Jesus Christ has done. You are listening to Grace Upon Grace. You remember the story of the Passover. And when God said, my wrath is going to be poured out all upon all of the land of Egypt and only those who take a lamb and they take that little lamb into their house and then they slay that lamb on the third day and they apply the blood of that lamb to the doorposts of their house, only that family will be spared because the judgment of God, you remember, was coming upon all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. And so those who believed what they heard about the coming judgment, about God judging the firstborn of the, of the land, they, they said, you know, we will take God's substitute rather than us being punished in the wrath of God that's coming. We will receive God's replacement, God's substitute, the lamb of God. And so they would place the blood of the lamb on their door, doorposts. And God said, when I, the Lord, shall see the blood, I will pass over you. And so the Lord's Passover lamb was offered, dying for their sins. And when that angel that brought death upon all the land of Egypt saw the blood, he passed over those houses with the blood on the doorpost. You see, lambs were slain, but you couldn't just say, well, a lamb died, therefore I'm automatically safe. 
You personally had to come into a place that had the blood on the doorpost. You personally had to have the blood on the doorpost of your house. And God has said the same thing. Judgment is coming upon this world. It's not an if judgment is coming, but it's a when. Judgment is coming. The wrath of God is revealed uh, against sin and ungodliness, and God is going to judge the world. And the only way of escape is through Jesus Christ, who came to be our lamb, and he died on the cross, and he died for everyone's sin. The Bible repeatedly tells us that, well, remember, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world because God so loved the world that whosoever would believe. Broad terms. But only those who believe will be saved. The sacrifice is there, you understand but it must be received. The blood has been shed, but the blood must be applied to our lives. It must be applied to your life. The scripture says in verse two, and he himself is the propitiation for our sin. That's a word that we don't use in our everyday language, but it means the atoning sacrifice. It means to appease wrath that is towards us, to to placate that wrath. And how does that happen? God did it himself. I could never, ever divert the wrath of God from me, myself. I could never have a righteousness of God. See, it's only the righteousness of God that can save us. You have to have God's very own righteousness in order to be saved. Well, that counts me out on my own. But when we believe in Jesus and his blood is placed upon us, the very righteousness of God becomes ours. God covers us completely with Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. The righteous Jesus Christ spoken of in verse one becomes our righteousness. And we stand in God's eyes as perfect and holy and complete and right and good. It's awesome. I don't think I'll ever get over this. I never get over, every time I say it, it's like, I, I don't know, would you ever get, you know, I, you know, if they let condos be built around the Grand Canyon and you wake up every morning and you look out at the view, would you ever get over the view? Would you ever say, oh, it's just the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I don't think so. And this is like this vista of God's love and God's grace. Oh, man. It's worth saying amen. Amen. And hallelujah. How about that? Yeah. Ooh. I love it. We have an advocate with the Father. Right now, Jesus stands before God, always interceding on our behalf, the Bible says. We aren't standing in this world without an advocate. And as we face other situations, you need to understand that you won't face them alone. You have an advocate with the Father, standing, facing the Father, Jesus Christ. When Stephen stood there and people started throwing stones at him and they were hurling accusations at him and they were... They were intent on taking him down and destroying him and killing him. Even as Stephen was dying, he looked up into heaven and he said, I see the heavens opened and I see one standing at the right hand of God. He saw Jesus standing there, standing with him, for him, by him. Jesus Christ never leaves you, never forsakes you. It seems like we say that every Wednesday night. It keeps coming back to that. And it's the truth. We never can forget it. We have to to kind of come back and say, okay, Lord, what do you want us to remember? I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm always with you even to the end of the age. I love you. We are so pummeled out there pummeled with the other messages 
that we come in here in God's sanctuary and we hear the good news. And it's, it's oh, soothing to my soul, really is. He's the propitiation, atoning sacrifice. I want to say a word about that. atoning sacrifice. The word atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. I always get afraid when I have to spell in front of you. <laughs> Never was in a spelling bee in my life. At one meant. When you look at the word atonement, you can break it up into those three words. At one meant. See, we have been separated from God by our sin. By our sins of deed, the sins that we have committed, and just by the sin of being born into this fallen world. We are born sinners. In Psalm 51, David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean that he had an illegitimate birth or immorality was involved. It wasn't in his, in his birth. He's saying, I was conceived in, in, this, in this world in sin because I am a descendant of Adam and Eve and they cast their vote for sin. And so I'm related to Adam and Eve. And I have to get out of the Adam's family and I have to be pulled into a new family. That's why, see, Jesus said you must be born again. Jesus said if the firstborn will die. Everyone who's been born the first time in this world, you'll die. You must be born again. You have to get out of this family you were in that's under the curse and under judgment and under the wrath of God and you come into God's new family in Christ and you'll be forgiven, and you'll be given right standing before God. You'll be justified with Jesus Christ's <coughs> perfect righteousness placed to your account. Is that righteousness in your account? Have you given your life to Christ? Tonight, I want to give you that opportunity as we bow our heads and close our eyes right now to give your life to Jesus. You've heard the good news of the gospel just now. And before we go on any further tonight, I want you to be able to respond because I don't think God brought you here by an accident. God brought you here because he wanted you to know he loves you. And you don't have to feel guilty anymore. You don't have to walk around with that dark cloud over your head of guilt, that burden on your back of guilt that you just can't unload. You can give it to the Lord, he'll take it away from you if you will come to Jesus, but you have to have the blood applied to your life. It's not enough that you say, well, I see the blood. It's not enough, well, I've heard about the blood. It's not enough for you to say, well, I really appreciate this. You have to apply the blood to your life. You have to, by faith, by believing, say, I believe that's for me, I receive that for me, and the Bible says we do that by asking God. The Bible says whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and we call on God by praying, and that's what we're gonna do right now. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for the opportunity just in the middle of things right here to respond to what your spirit is saying and doing, and Lord, we ask that you will grant now that every person that you've brought here purposefully tonight to hear this good news will respond. Lord, set them free and give them new life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed right now, I want you to have the opportunity to ask the Lord Jesus to come and apply his blood onto your life, to set you free and give you a brand new beginning in your life and he will take the guilt away. You don't have to live with that guilt. You don't have to face judgment, which is sure. Judgment is coming. It's coming upon this world. There will be a judgment day. The Bible said it is pointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. You will die and stand before God in judgment if you do not receive Jesus. And God will say, why should I let you into my kingdom? And the only answer that will get you in is I have believed in Jesus and I trust in him. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Many people are praying for you right now. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray a simple prayer with me. I want you to pray it between you, me, and the Lord. Don't pray it out loud, but pray it with all your heart. Just between you and me and the Lord, you pray this prayer. I'll pray it phrase by phrase. You pray with me so that... Uh, 
You just, you have a guide to pray by. And Jesus will come into your life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you pray that. Thank you for loving me and for sending Jesus to die for the wrong things I have done. I don't want to face your wrath. I know I need you and your saving life. Forgive me and accept me just as I am now. I believe that Jesus died for me and I'm asking that his blood would be put on my life. I believe Jesus rose too from the dead and I'm accepting him right now as my Savior and my Lord.
listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. During the last few weeks of Christian Ethics, we spent a lot of time discussing how God serves as the standard of the world, God's nature, the nature of morality, and the core of the laws as well as various ethical beliefs that exist in the world today. Some of you may have wondered why we need to spend so much time covering these concepts. It is essential to have a firm understanding of these concepts in order to have a meaningful discussion about ethical issues in the upcoming episodes of Christian Ethics. For today, let's compare and contrast theism and secularism. Theism is a belief that God is the center of the universe, where secularism is a belief that the man is the center. Theism acknowledges the existence of God as the creator, while secularism denies it. Theism believes that God specifically created men, while secularism believes that man evolved from other animals. Theism believes that God is sovereign over all life, while secularism claims that men are sovereign. Theism emphasizes the dignity of life, but secularism focuses on the quality of life. Theism holds that the purpose cannot justify the means, where secularism believes that the purpose may justify the means. Such secularism, or secular humanism, begins by assuming that God does not exist. Because it denies the existence of God, it also denies the existence of absolute morality. According to secularism, Human beings are highly intellectual animals that do not have a fundamental moral responsibility. Secularism states that atypical deeds or actions beyond natural boundaries could be adjusted by changing the environment, education, or medical technologies. The belief system of secularists is obviously very different from that of a theist. On the other hand, the theist perspective begins from acknowledging God, the superior being, is perfect in morals and capabilities. As we discussed last time, the ethics that are based on the nature of God is unchangeable. There is an absolute right and absolute wrong. When a person decides to do something wrong, it is not derived from genetics or the environment, as a secularist argues. Instead, it is based on the person's free will, which in the end will inevitably be judged. Another important difference between theism and secularism would be the emphasis on life. Theism stands for the dignity of life, where secularism emphasizes the quality of life. For theism, life itself has a significant value because God created it. Human beings, especially, are created in the form of God and therefore have a very fundamental value. The life of a person is valuable whether or not he or she is productive, intellectual, or good. The belief thus recognizes the worth of a person even if he or she never contributed to humanity. Every person has the form of God and must be valued. Now let's look at secularism. Secularists argue for the quality of life, which contradicts the concept of the dignity of life. They base their ethical decisions on their impacts on the quality of life. For example, a pregnant woman may decide on abortion based on the future quality of her or the baby's life. Secularists claim that if a baby is going to be born and raised in an unhappy household, it may be right for the baby to be aborted. They believe it is better to be unborn than to be born 
and experience a bad quality of life. The theists believe in God, the sovereign yet sympathetic being of the universe. This has to do with God's power and rule over the universe. In ethics, God's sovereignty refers to his influence over life and death of a human being. When a secularist says that humans are the axis of the universe, they are in fact sitting on the throne of God. They believe that they have rights to create, destroy, or duplicate life. Do you believe that the purpose can justify the means? If the purpose is good, can the evil means be excused? Theists would say no, while the secularists may answer yes. Secularists argue that in order to improve the quality of life for certain people, or in order to save certain lives, it is justifiable to destroy the life of the minority. The minority may be sacrificed for the majority. On the other hand, theists rely on God for the matter of life and death. It should be very obvious the two beliefs, secularism and biblical theism, oppose each other. Many people do not realize or consider how their perspectives influence the way they make decisions in their daily lives. It is important, however, for us to know where our thoughts are derived from. We all have been raised and educated in the environment saturated in secular beliefs, and it is very easy to drift away from God's standards and His teachings. When we begin discussing various current issues next week, we will all realize where we stand between the two belief systems. In some cases, we may find ourselves in disagreement with biblical theism because we have been exposed to and have started to accept secularism. Nevertheless, we must accept God's standards as the absolute truth, no matter how we feel about it. This concludes this week's episode. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
this love so rescuing Oh, how infinitely sweet This great love that has redeemed As one we sing like to have the kind of faith that allows us to command a mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. We also want to have the faith of being able to forgive someone who asks and seeks to repent. We would like to have the great faith to heal diseases and to expel evil spirits. But Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 17 that all of those works can be done even with small faith, that even with faith the size of a mustard seed we can do all that. And it says in verse 6, You could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the seed, and it would obey you. This passage isn't telling us if we would have had the faith, what we asked may have happened. But if we would have had the faith, it will happen. It is telling us that great things can be done with little faith. But how so? How is it that even with little faith, greater things can happen? because the one who controls those works is God. But Jesus tells us that even more, that having great faith is knowing who we are. Who are we? We are God's servants. We were not forced to be his servants, but brought us to be his servants by the blood of Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul always introduced himself as a servant of Christ, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Why do you think he was able to have such great faith? Because he knew who he was. He knew he was a servant of God, a servant of Christ. When the apostles seek to increase their faith in the book of Luke, the word increase is a very interesting term. Having great faith isn't adding faith on top of the faith I already have, but to press and expand my faith and make it greater. It is just like dough made from flour. When you roll the dough with a rolling pin, it is being pressed down but expands and gets bigger. In order to expand the dough, you have to press it and make it flat. As it expands more and more, the dough becomes flatter and flatter. This is what great faith is. Even today, we do many things for Christ. Wherever we all may be, we serve in our own ministries for Christ. But what kind of heart do we have when serving? Do we serve thinking that Jesus will acknowledge how hard we have been working, or thinking that Jesus will pay us back? 
Will we be upset if we don't get rewarded and he oversees what we have done? Do we have this heart, or have we ever thought this when serving Christ? Do we get upset when others or our pastor don't acknowledge all we are doing? Do you want greater faith? Then we need to humble ourselves. Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verse 10, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I hope this next week we may all increase our faith through humility and with a servant's heart. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week and God bless. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe you're all to us. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful. To the end, we are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe you're all to us. Let the glory of your name be the passion of. Church, let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe you're all to us.
when this passing world is over we will see you face to face and forever we will worship jesus you are all to us jesus you are all to us to